When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a family podcast. We are talking a little bit more about sex than we usually do. So if that makes you uncomfortable, now you know. Dylan was, he was a revolutionary, man. The way that, the way that Elvis freed your body, Bob freed your mind. This is Bob Dylan about man and God and law. As the great Bo Diddley taught us so many pages ago, you can't judge a book by looking at its cover. And you can't judge me. Not for looking at Bob Dylan's bookishness. You can't judge me, nor am I here to judge. But Bob Dylan's been judged by the most bookish judges ever. The man has a Nobel Prize for literature to his name, and more importantly, he has marked the wellsprings of his creativity with books from day one. From the Bible to Moby Dick and those Japanese detective novels everyone talks about. Now, we're going bookish at this, the final season of Bob Dylan about man, God, and law comes to a close. And as part of it, we'll be reviewing the twin release of new books by the two best authors about Bob Dylan in the whole wide world. The first, of course, is Bob Dylan. There never was a Chronicles Volume 2, but there is the philosophy of song in which Dylan says he will explain his, ours, theirs, and yours of the title, the philosophy of song, that is. We'll be doing our homework in order to try to explain what Dylan means over the next few episodes. And then, in a library of Christopher Ricks and Richard Thomas and David Dalton and Ellen Willis, Griel Marcus is head and shoulders above the rest. He now offers folk music, a Bob Dylan biography in seven songs. It's his latest and perhaps last adventure in writing a tome of this size and length about Dylan. No one has written more compellingly about Bob Dylan than Greel. No one for our money has actually written more compellingly about rock and roll than Greel. And we can't wait to dig into this book with you over the next weeks as well. Now, speaking of books, as you probably know, I've got one for you, too, about man and God and law. The Spiritual Wisdom of Bob Dylan is available wherever books are sold. I'll be doing a bunch of events in November. Visit mangodlaw.com for details. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Daniel Arnoff. 
And when it comes to Dylan and books, we're opening the book on the pages and the text, and we're really quite sure just what happens next. Chapter 5 of Season 3 of Bob Dylan about Man and God and Law. Once upon a time you dressed so fine the bones of time in your pride you A podcast that inspired a book in and of itself. For all of these reasons and more, we're going to throw the book at you. Lots of books will be thrown at you, in fact. One at a time, and once upon a time, and here it begins, Dylan and the Book. Part 1. Bob Dylan and Philip Roth. Once upon a time you dressed so fine, threw the bubs a dime, and once upon a time, Portnoy's complaint didn't exist, but like a Rolling Stone did. It's strange to think about it now, but like a Rolling Stone, maybe Bob Dylan's best or most important, and certainly one of his most famous songs, came out nearly four years before Philip Roth's most famous book, even if it was far from his best book. And that was Portnoy's complaint. You gone to the finest school, all right. Miss Lonely, but you know you only used to get juice today. Like a Rolling Stone, July 1965, Portnoy's complaint, January 1969. That's a gap in time that includes not only all three of Dylan's monster albums, Bringing It All Back Home, Highway 61 Revisited, on which Like a Rolling Stone appeared, and Blonde on Blonde, that found Dylan at the peak of his powers. But also a period that included his motorcycle crash and John Wesley Harding and his receding from public life. This order of cultural operations in and of itself is hard to wrap one's head around. Like a Rolling Stone, pace setting unprecedented, Moore's shifting, and up until recently fairly universally called the greatest rock song of all time, preceded Portnoy by a lifetime in pop terms. Wouldn't it seem that the mad sexual liberation of Portnoy's complaint that blew up the literary scene would um, come first? Wasn't 1967 called the Summer of Love? A summer in which Dylan would convalesce and not appear on stage is that summer that marked a key point of consciousness of the sexual revolution. Could it be that only in the aptly numbered year of 69, a book that outraged critics as libertine, perverted, and obscene appeared two years after the summer of love? This is not a story of cause and effect. It's more of a story of a cultural spiral in which Bob Dylan and Philip Roth took part in for decades. And though we could start a conversation in many places, we're starting with intimacy, most particularly the intimacy of sex, what it can and cannot be or do in the work 
of these two incredible artists. As Dylan sang on Rough and Rowdy Ways, the new concert staple Black Rider, Black Rider, Black Rider, hold it right there. The size of your cock will get you nowhere. Now, this is precisely a question driving Philip Roth's antihero Alex Portnoy. It's driving him crazy. The question of the cock, the penis, as Dylan also sang on the timeless song, I Dreamed I Saw St. Augustine, Portnoy's sad complaint. Indeed, in Portnoy's complaint, his old-school analyst, Dr. Spielvogel, diagnoses his patient's problem as a crippling case of displaced morality in an endlessly restless sea of sexual desire. <laughs> a stew of sex and dread, morality and mortality. It runs through like the river Sambation through the landscape of Philip Roth's career. But Dylan never seemed to have such problems with sex in his songs. Limited in sex they dare, he sang in the somewhat Freudian, it's all right, ma, I'm only bleeding. But that was them and not him. In fact, according to BobDylan.com, and my recollection, this is the only time that Dylan uses the word sex in his canon. Yes, she makes love just like a woman, but this is almost a Victorian, not Victorian secret, as per later renditions of Lovesick. Appreciation for the act. It was once, at least in Tough Mama on 1974's Planet Ways, hotter than a crotch. But lust just doesn't make much hay in Dylan's canon. Why? The ever-hungry, ever-burdened body may be Philip Roth's most beloved topic, but Dylan's obsession is love. The stories of the heart. I've made up my mind to give myself to you. Ever since it came out in 2021, it has seemed to me almost like a kind of bookend to Like a Rolling Stone. How does it feel? How does it feel 60 years later, long after the longing and reaching out of Like a Rolling Stone? Well, maybe, finally, after all and without the happy ending, so to speak, it feels vulnerable and open and, quote, while he would stray far from home with her, unquote. Dylan's current hero does not sound alone at all. He's not accusatory or angry. He's not isolated and longing. No, no. Rather, how does it feel is exposed even more than it was before. But with the twist that comes with saying that love and only love that are deeply revealing about the core issues of humanity during their era, particularly that gathering of humanity based in the United States of America, each of these artists defines the core elements of a journey of meaning. When their recognition in both the commercial and intellectual marketplaces coalesce, they're wrestling with intimacy, 
carries implications for the heart, but also for the country, where these allegiances and alliances and seeking take place. As I've written in my book and said here before, Like a Rolling Stone is a song of empathy, of reaching out or looking to the other. It might begin with a caustic bitterness about an unreachable love, but she is Miss Lonely. And as much as he may resent her at first, he is Mr. Lonely, singing up to her on the terrace from down on Lonely Avenue. He knows how she feels because he feels it too. And he wants to know, not to paint a portrait of her in a corner that she can actually talk to him about it. It is, at least in a generous hearing, a story of comfort. Maybe tough love for a tough mama, but love nonetheless. A song of sharing feelings of discomfort in order not to feel alone. Black Rider, Black Rider. Now, Philip Roth is uncomfortable too. He's ravenous for contact, for conquering, for, for coming, and obsessed to the point of nervous collapse with getting what's in his pants into the pants of his lover. It was groundbreaking how Philip Roth told it in 1969 in Portnoy's complaint, but the human experience he describes was not unusual at all. Chuck Berry knew it as well as the Shirelles, Mick Jagger, or James Brown. That's, that's the pop version of the same thing even if it had to be filmed above the hips for a while in the rock and roll television universe. Down below. Now, porn may be today's biggest growth industry. No pardoning the pun. But the cultural marketplace of America and sex has got to be more about loneliness than titillation. And with the possible exceptions for Lady Chatterley's lover or Henry Miller or undercurrents of James Joyce, or the ancient come-ons of the Song of Songs, which we've talked about here before, Philip Roth took the cake when it came to describing the desperate need to immolate loneliness on the bonfire of desire. As they come out of the gate with certain patterns and predilections, because they are truly great artists. Dylan and Roth both work and rework the same set of ideas into fabulous new expressions of how these ideas play out over time. A lot of work and a lot of water went down underneath the bridge from the mid to late 60s to 1997. Hundreds of songs written and concerts played for Dylan, thousands of pages published for Roth, and likely ten times that written and edited away. But in 1997, each produced masterworks at advancing ages for their fields that were considered amongst the best they or anyone had ever done. Neil Young, Paul McCartney, Paul Simon, Joni Mitchell, none of Dylan's peers were producing like him as the 20th century came to a close. And this is even more true today. And the same was true of Philip Roth in 1997. Saul Bellow, touch older, 
had worked hard until the end, but the results faded. Mailer was mailing it in to some extent. A case could be made for Don DeLillo's underworld of the same year and of truly being a masterwork. Toni Morrison was younger and probably a more important writer than Roth for what America really needed. But her best work had long passed when she entered her own homestretch. Black Rider, Black Rider Hold it right there The size of your cock will get you nowhere I'll suffer in silence I'll not make a sound Maybe I'll take the high moral ground And Roth just got stronger, at least through the 2004 book The Plot Against America. Black Rider, Black Rider, you've been on the job too long. With which we will close this chapter of our podcast. Bill Clinton was president. William S. Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg died. Mike Tyson bit off part of Evander Holyfield's ear. Bob Dylan released Time Out of Mind. And Philip Roth released American Pastoral. Swede Lavov, the hero of Roth's 1997 novel, American Pastoral, seems to be, at first blush, a lot like Mr. Jones, the Mad Men-esque square from Just Like a Thin Man released on the very same album as Like a Rolling Stone, his seemingly perfect American dream story. Swede, a star athlete, married to a beauty queen, a successful businessman, all of the worldly comforts. His life is upended and overtaken by the slide of his beloved daughter Mary into thinking she really did know which way the wind blows, toward the weather underground, a group inspired by Dylan's line from subterranean homesick blues that you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. Well, Mary became part of a fictionalized weather underground, became a domestic terrorist, killed people in her actions, and cut off contact with her family. Me, I'm still on the road, still looking for another joint from Tangled Up in Blue could be a tagline for both Dylan's album and Roth's book. American history has not spared the characters who cover the landscape of these works, and somehow these characters just stayed on the road, looking for another joint. I'm going to sit down in the parlor and relive my dreams, Dylan sings in Trying to Get to Heaven, before they close the door from that 1997 album, Time Out of Mind. He's still looking for salvation as he looks back on a life lived to its fullest, a life narrated by titles like Love Sick and Not Dark Yet. And for Roth, there are many kinds of homecoming in American Pastoral with its wickedly ironic title. Not just the use of a high school reunion in his hometown of Newark as a platform for the story, but the book's narrator, 
Nathan Zuckerman, a hero of Roth's novels for decades, who returns to tell the tale of a man's and a country's world gone wrong. Roth called his American pastoral indigenous American berserk. Everyone in the novel, as J.D. Salinger's Holden Caulfield might say, is a phony. All is phony, Bob Dylan sings in It's All Right, Ma. He's not afraid to tell his mother where he's really at. And that's a long, long way from, from the plastic face of his wife to the false identities of his child hidden in plain sight by Swede's secret lover to a bitter brother imparting a version of Swede's story to Zuckerman, who relays it to Roth, who tells us what he wants us to know. He tells us that our tremors and scars of violence and anger from the 60s streaming underneath an otherwise supposedly idyllic America. When you think that you've lost everything You find out you can always lose a little more I'm just going down the road feeling bad Trying to get to heaven before they close the door Both men describe in Dylan's words the scars that won't heal. They're etched into Swede's daughter's Mary's face. She's the outcast. As much as they are etched into Swede's broken heart, both are stories relentless in their attempts to tell a true tale about the gaps exposed in what seemed like the most pastoral of scenes, like Dylan and Miss Mary Jane at her house in Baltimore. And in some ways, this is the dance that both Dylan and Roth danced. The scenes are dark, a menacing in America that reflects and aligns with a restlessness of old age. Roth was older than Dylan by close to 10 years, but the issues with which they came of age as artists, from JFK and Watergate to Obama, who awarded presidential medals of honor to both between a Bush-Trump sandwich, framed their creative lives. Dylan finds respite for loneliness in love and God, mixing the two. God is my shield, Dylan sings. I know the mercy of God will appear, he sings. There's really no questioning of Dylan as a man of faith, at least not tonight and it won't be here. Roth has no such comfort, as sex is the coinage of love for him and it doesn't last or the equipment designed for it loses its bite, God knows God cannot help him in any of these capacities. In an interview posted by The Guardian on December 14th, 2005, journalist Martin Krasnick asked Roth if he was religious. I'm exactly the opposite of religious, he said. I'm anti-religious. I find religious people hideous. I hate the religious lies. It's all a big lie. Then Roth offered the interviewer a question of his own. Are you religious yourself? No, said Krasnick, but I, I'm sure that life would be easier if I was. No, Roth answered. I don't think so. I have such a huge dislike. It's not a neurotic thing, but a, the miserable record of religion. I don't even want to talk about it. It's not interesting to talk about the sheep referred to as believers. When I write, I'm alone. It's filled with fear and loneliness and anxiety, and I never needed religion to save me. So there's something truly secular and terrifying about Roth's vision. How does it feel to be on your own? Aloneness, 
and all of his characters wind up alone, move ahead more than 20 years. 23 to be exact. After 9-11 and love and theft. After Iraq and Obama. It was a dark day in Dallas, November 63. A day that would live on in infamy. President Kennedy was a right line. Good day to be living and a good day to die. It led to the slaughter like a sacrificial lamb. Roth died in 2018. Trump had already arrived by then, which drove Roth mad. But then again, he had already predicted it all, just as Dylan's timing was impeccable with his message of how to weather whichever way the wind blows. First, Dylan's murder most foul. It was a matter of timing, and the timing was right. You got unpaid debts. We've come to collect. We're gonna kill you with hatred without any respect. It's a Shakespearean monologue in all of the ways from the title of the song, Hamlet Inspired as Previously Discussed, to, to the fact that it's the narrative of a ghost. One John F. Kennedy, for whom more than 60 years, the span of almost all of Bob Dylan and Philip Roth's respective careers, it took to tell us what was on his mind after the first bullet hit. Stay safe, stay observant, and may God be with you. These are the words on social media that announced the release of Murder Most Foul in March 2020. Stay safe, Dylan said as COVID-19 was incapacitating the world, the United States alone on a course for more than a million dead. Stay observant, he said, as the federal government, misled by then-President Trump, eagerly misdirected every eye and all attention from addressing a massive human tragedy. And may God be with you, he said, words like the words of a captain of a ship about to go down. The song itself was recorded just a month prior to its release, written sometime earlier, though Dylan has not said when. Murder Most Foul is a reverie, reminiscent of parlor songs like Trying to Get to Heaven Before They Close the Door, where the singer daydreams at dusk or in the early morning hours in the stillness of a quiet room. He's alone. He's alone. But he's not. In Murder Most Foul, everyone from Charlie Parker to Patsy Cline is still making beautiful music. Whether they are alive or dead, the music lives on, and we hear it alongside Dylan and JFK. Art lives on. It's strong enough to look even the most horrific American berserk in the face and still hold a tune. Hold the cement. Don't say Dallas don't love you, Mr. President. Put your foot in the tank and step on the gas. Try to make it to the triple underpass. Black face singer, white face clown. Better not show your faces after the sun goes down. I'm in the red light district, like a cop on the beach. You might say, comparing this final chunk of time is unfair. If Roth died in 2008 and had stopped writing a few years before, but part of the magic of both of these artists, or any great artist is how they find a way for their work to float freely through time like a friendly ghost and in particular for Roth 
both plagues of COVID and of Trump, had coalesced in his fiction before blooming in real time as a means of the work holding up the reader with something loving and brave just like Murder Most Foul, even after the writer was gone. Nemesis was Ross's last book in 2010, the last in a cluster of four, all short by the standards of the works that preceded them, and all produced fast, almost one per year, before he hung up his pen for good. And all a sort of reverie written in the voice of a narrator with just one more tale to tell, one more thing to say. Nemesis recalls the polio epidemic of Roth's youth and one tragically fallen coach carrying forward a band of terrified or oblivious kids who just wanted to live and play until he can't. Every Man, Exit Ghost, The Humbling, and Nemesis, all four of these short novels, read like last testaments recalling youth, not murders, but recalling youth like murder most foul recalls our then most youthful president and attempts at saying something noble beyond what has gone foul and aged almost out of purpose. Tommy, can you hear me? I'm the Acid Queen. And then there's the plot against America. Not the one today, but the one released in 2004. This was Roth's last monumental work, and it is a nightmare, set in the same period as Nemesis, World War II in Newark, with those days' version of Proud Boys and Tea Parties and Promise Keepers, aligned with an infrastructure of hatred and control led by fictional president Charles Lindbergh. The family and country almost don't make it. Jews face transport and separation, but FDR and a cluster of better selves do prevail. Like Harry Potter, little Philip Roth is the boy who lived in the plot against America, and he lives to tell the tale of what could have been, how America could have ended up then, how it could end up now. But his soul was not there where it was supposed to be at. For the last 50 years, they've been searching for that. A January 6th rebellion that results in a fascist, racist, anti-Semitic front that erases America one plot at a time. Roth describes himself as a prothesis in the last line of the plot against America, sucker for one of the casualties of that war, a peg leg, someone or something to lean on. I lean on Roth all the time myself, nearly as much as I lean on Dylan for his insatiable desires, yes, the liberated sexual ones and the distaste for mores of phonies and also for a love of the written word that inspires kind of constant striving to say something important and beautiful. But I also lean on Roth for this simple sweetness of love of a sibling or a mother or father, a neighborhood, a ball team, a city, a country, for life itself. And that's nearly all that's left at points in the plot against America. And in the final four novels, the only part of life, simple love, not even great sex, is the only thing worth saving. These are his songs of experiences, 
his friendly ghosts, the plot against America, it may still be unfolding. I'm not convinced that either Dylan's reverie or Roth's nightmare are less real than what we see in the power and greed and corruptible seed of the so-called real world. We have not lost the plot, though, have we? We can't shake those plots. 2022 and 24 will give us a pretty good indication of whether we have lost the plot. They killed him once and they killed him twice. Killed him like a human sacrifice. The day that they killed him, someone said to me, sir, the age of the Antichrist has just only begun. And as for murder's most foul, if it took so many decades for JFK's ghost to speak, what other voices still remain to be heard about what has befallen America? It is what it is, and it's murder most foul. Despite their dystopian visions, America still is a land of novels and song. Armstrong and Ellington and Billie Holiday and Woody and Bob. Murder Most Foul. That song list. It's America. Tony Morrison, F. Scott Fitzgerald, James Baldwin, Don DeLillo, Philip Roth. That's America, too. It seems more and more like we live in an age of seeing America's promise as a mythology from the past. No matter what side of history you're on. So we look to the past. Let's look to the past to try to understand a future with imagination. Let's look at an imagined past as a valuable resource, even as natural resources and common sense decline. We need these artists more than ever. Their intimacies and their prophecies and their urges urging us towards a truth of our own. Maybe that only the good die young. Take me to the place Tom Dooley was hung. They say James Infirmary in the court of King James. If you want to remember, you better write down the names. Play the James too. Play a valuable. You have been listening to Chapter 5 of Season 3 of About Man and God and Law. This is the podcast that inspired the book About Man and God and Law, The Spiritual Wisdom of Bob Dylan. Find that book wherever fine books are sold. And more about the book and the projects surrounding it at mangodlaw.com. We are proud to be part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. How about downloading the Pantheon Podcast app to have access to all of the wonderful music podcasts in our pod family? Chapter 
stay tuned for more of Bob Dylan and books. Part two, three, and four are on the way. I am your host, Stephen Daniel Arnoff. Thanks for coming. See you soon. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.